Let's just pray and we'll jump in. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here again today. Lord, what we're learning is important. It's about your character, about who you are, and how you want us to live. It's your ideal. It's your standard. And who you want us to be, who you're transforming us to be like. So help us to understand, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, we're at Exodus chapter 20. We're just going to go straight through the chapter 20, verse by verse, and look at the Ten Commandments. It's not just the Ten Commandments, it's how God says the Ten Commandments too. So, let's go. Chapter 20, I'm just going to read through first. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbour's. So, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. So, it's good that he says, I am the Lord your God. Not just, I am God, you must do this. It's a personal thing. I am your God. So we can call these, as Christians, we can call these Ten Commandments the Tender Commandments because it's a personal thing that God wants us to do. If we go to the New Testament, if we look up 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, I just want to read a verse from there. 1 John Chapter 5, verse 3, I just want to quickly think about do we keep God's Ten Commandments to earn his love or is it to experience his love? So 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous or that they're not a burden. So. We don't earn God's love by keeping his commandments. That would be legalism. He says keeping his commandments, God's commandments, is the love of God. 
And you might say, well, I'm not experiencing God's love. Well, I might ask you the question, are you keeping his commandments? And you might say, well, I don't have to. I'm under grace. Yes, you are. You'll still make it to heaven. But you'll only experience God's love here and now when you keep his commandments because he alone knows how you are made, how you tick, and his commandments constitute his personal instruction book for you, straight from your manufacturer. We need to live according to the principles of the Ten Commandments, otherwise we're going to have sin in our lives and sin is going to hurt us. So God's commandments are not grievous or a burden because rules provide liberty. Do you guys understand that freedom is only found within boundaries? You may ask, well, that's great, Dave. I can only experience God's love by obeying rules that I can't keep. Actually, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. Now, why is it light? How can keeping the Ten Commandments be light for us today? Well, we don't do it. It's Christ living in us that keeps the Ten Commandments. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, or submitted to the Spirit, then obeying the commandments will be the natural thing to do. It's what we want to do. It's how we want to be. It's who we are. We can't help but do the things that God wants us to do. We can't help but be the person God wants us to be. We will want to be honest, to be faithful, to work hard, because that's the new nature, the new heart that God has given us. That is the character of Christ that we are being transformed into. So an example of a rule, okay? This is a rule I keep every single day in the morning. I brush my teeth. Okay. Because I do it every day, is that legalism? I find it to be quite refreshing. Not only that, but it releases me from all this philosophical questioning. I never have to ask, to brush or not to brush? Do I have time? Is this the right day? Does brushing apply to me? And I could waste a great deal of energy debating and wondering if I should brush my teeth. But because brushing my teeth is a non-negotiable rule for me, I'm released from all kinds of mental turmoil. And not only does brushing refresh and release me, but it relieves those around me. For example, I had the freedom to kiss my wife. So it's a win-win situation. It's the same with God's law. It's how I experience his love personally and express my love practically. So verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So commandments are vitally important for us, not only because of who God is, our creator, but also because of where we were. Like the children of Israel, we grew up as slaves in Egypt. We grew up in bondage to sin. Whips cracking over us, orders shouted at us, burdens placed upon us. We didn't even know how to think. But our Creator, Redeemer, Liberator, rescued us and brought us out of bondage and teaches us to think rightly or correctly in order that we might live successfully in the land of promise, live by faith. So God wants us to live by faith. And the reason that he gives us these rules is so we can live a successful life, a life which is honoring to the Lord. So the first commandment in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. So what's this telling us? It's telling us two things. There's a premise in here. 
a premise and a promise. The premise is that there are other gods. Not in the same way that Jesus is God, but, for example, Baal, the god who supposedly hurled lightning down from heaven, 1 Kings 18 24, he's the god of power. So we can munch on power bars, listen to power YouTube clips. We can think we're powerful and in control. We can learn lots of people still unknowingly worship Baal today. That's modern Baal worship, you know. Ashtaroth was the goddess of sensuality, of pleasure, a goddess worshipped extensively in our society by those with the if it feels good, do it mentality. Mammon, the god of money, the god of prosperity, it's in the church even, prosperity gospel. Because it is a love of money rather than the money itself which is evil, it's not only the wealthy who are prone to worship mammon, it's anyone who places a priority on money, who worries about money, or strives for money, they are vulnerable to worship mammon, or they are worshipping mammon. So you don't have to have money to worship money, to be worried about it. Moloch was a god of practicality. Now, we've talked about this with abortion and stuff like that, but here's another aspect I found out about. To earn Moloch's blessing upon his new business, the Moloch worshipper would place his firstborn in an earthen jar and build the walls of his shop around it, believing his baby entombed within the wall wasn't really dead, but would reappear in his next child. Pretty gross, eh? But many a parent does virtually the same thing today when, in the name of practicality, they ignore their children in the name of advancing their career, mistakenly thinking that once their business is successful, their place in the company secure, they can reconnect with their kids. The problem is, the kids grow up, time is lost, and the opportunity dies on the altar of practicality. So in addition to the premise that there are other gods, this first commandment carries a promise that other gods will not indefinitely have a hold on us. And there's a good example in 1 Samuel 5, Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines? And they put it in the temple of Dagon, and this god which was half man and half fish. And the next day the priest went into the temple, and here's Dagon flattening its face. They put it back up, put this idol back up, and the next day, again, it was on its face with its head and hands broken off. So, Today, God is saying to us, figuratively, let me into the temple of your heart and I'll knock Dagon down. I'll knock Baal out. I'll take care of Mammon. I'll deal with Ashtaroth. It's a good analogy. The Ten Commandments is the only law in history, especially antiquity, that forbids the worship of other gods. Did you know that all the other codes and cultures allowed or even encouraged the worship of other deities, and I didn't know that. So it's something I learnt when I was studying this. Now, why is that? Because all other gods work as a team to bring hell into people's lives and to damn them eternally. They're turning you away from God. There will be no other gods before the true and living God because those gods will not come through ultimately. In the last day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus alone is Lord. Philippians 2, 10, 11. 
And we're looking forward to that day. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So, to understand what God must look like, man has looked to nature for clues. Now, you look at different cultures, right? What do the Native Americans make God to be? They look to the sky, the majestic eagle. Ah, God's an eagle. What about the Indians? They looked out at the grassy plain and they see a peaceful yet powerful cow, and so God's a cow. Looking out to the sea, the Pacific Islander saw the massive sea turtle with its impenetrable shell and decided God must be a sea turtle. So we don't fall into that kind of thing in our Western culture, but we can have a faulty image of who God is. So some people might say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit on God's lap and feel his embrace. Well, the Father is spirit. We're not going to be, I believe, to sit on his lap and give him a cuddle. He's spirit. In Revelation 19, he's described by colors. The color of his garment, the flame of his eyes, etc. So we can make an image of God in our hearts and in our minds too. If you'd like to look up Hebrews chapter 1, and talking about the image of God, this gives us a clue to how we should understand what God looks like and how we should understand him to be. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and the key verse is verse 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Long ago... Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything through the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son he created the universe. Verse 3. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. So Christianity is not about making an image of God. It's about looking at Jesus and allowing him to conform us into his image, which is also the image of the Father. Jesus said in John 14.9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's the image of God that we have in our mind, Jesus and his character, who he was. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous of the other gods. He's got nothing to be jealous of. He's greater than them. Rather, he's jealous for us. He wants the best for us. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's like we're jealous for our kids to do well. We don't want our kids to be drawn away into something that's going to hurt them, we're jealous in a good sense for them. We want to keep them in what's going to be best for them. Verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I've heard this verse misused a lot. I believe, this is my understanding of it, that this Generational curse thing is nothing more than just a practical thing. 
the way we live our lives, we pass it on to our kids. That's it. My priorities, like that song, Cat Stevens, Cats in the Cradle. You know, his father was real busy. Well, the son was real busy. It's just that. That's how I see this. I don't think you should make anything more out of this. So the priorities that we have, the philosophy you embrace, is going to impact your kids, your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren. However, if you live for Jesus, if you're a person of prayer, if you spend time in the Word and in fellowship, then these qualities will be passed on to future generations as well. So you can pass on negative things or you can pass on positive things. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this is the first one that's got another warning here, like an extra warning. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Most people agree that we work better as a society and in our families when there's no murder, stealing or lying. So people understand that they're pretty practical commandments. But in the minds of most people, the third commandment really doesn't matter. What does it matter if people take the name of the Lord in vain, if they blaspheme his name? But God does not agree with this. He's saying, no, it's not right. Why doesn't God want his name taken in vain? Well, I've got a couple of ideas. You might have extra ideas, but these are two that I've thought of. When the Lord's name is used in vain, like as a square word or manner devoid of meaning, the result is it desensitizes people to his name. So Satan, I believe, is behind blasphemy and profanity because they trivialize both salvation and damnation. This commandment is not about God being offended, but about people being lost, desensitized to the reality of the name that will save them and the reality of where they will be if they don't receive him. And you think about this. If someone hits their thumb with a hammer and they say, gee, damn it, what are they saying? May this project be damned to destruction. Some people speak those words. Our words have power. I'm not going to go into all that stuff about speaking power, but there is a certain aspect of what we speak. It can affect us and can affect other people. Proverbs 18.21 says, and because life and death are indeed in the power of the tongue. So our words will have some kind of impact. Now, you probably realize that if you mock Buddha or make fun of an Indian religion, you'll be definitely politically incorrect. People will say, oh, you can't say that. That's naughty, yeah. But if you use the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word, no one even cares. How many times you've heard the name Muhammad used as a cuss word in a movie? Never. What about the name of Jesus? Well, I don't watch movies, but the last one I watched with um, Marissa was she got a free ticket, and it's the cleanest one we could get. It still had blasphemy in it. Yeah, they had to use one swear word and one blasphemy in this family-friendly movie. It's like, why do they have to do that? Now, we can't keep this from happening outside our homes, but we can use it as an opportunity to witness, right? So if someone says, you know, swears using God's name in vain, we can turn around and say, oh, I know him too. He's my saviour. Do you know him? And we can use it as a conversation starter. 
What about in our home? Well, think of the person you love the most. You wouldn't use their name as a swear word because you love and respect them. So you want to demonstrate love and respect for God in your home. So don't allow God's name to be used as a swear word to be blasphemed in your house. So think of what you watch on television, what you listen to on the radio, what books you read, what movies you watch, and the internet. His name must be respected and protected because of who he is. And that's pretty hard today with the stuff that's around, so you've got to be pretty on the ball. Verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, etc. So, the children of Israel worked for over a hundred years as slaves in Egypt. They were there for longer than that, but they weren't always slaves. The concept of a day off would be a dream for them. You think about that. You're a slave working seven days a week, and God says you can have a day off every week. Amazing. As far as I know, it's the only society back then where they had a day off. And if you read the scriptures, the other cultures are always trying to bring food in and trade with the Jews on the Sabbath. So just think of when the Assyrians were attacking them. What did the children of Israel do? Well, they sent messengers to the Egyptians. They tried to set up an alliance with the Egyptians. But the Egyptians couldn't help them. They failed to realize that it was only in God that they could find help. So, do you ever feel like there's financial, relational, physical problems that are waging war against you? Ever feel like you can't get ahead or even catch up? Well, if we go to Isaiah chapter 30, there's a couple of good verses in here we can look up. Talking about resting. So the bills are mounting, the pressures are building, the Syrians are coming, whatever the problem might be. What am I to do? It says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. So the whole thing here is that God wants us to rest. He wants us to trust in him and stop striving to do things on our own strength. Go down to verse 21. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. So God is promising here that he will guide you when we take the time to be quiet and listen. So if we consistently take one day out of every seven, now it doesn't matter which day it is, you know, we've talked about this before a couple of times that it doesn't matter which day you have off. Every day is holy to the Lord. But if we say, this is yours, Lord, we're saying, we're acknowledging that what I have and enjoy is not because of my work ethic, my creativity, my business acumen, my energy. It's all from you. I'm going to prove that to myself and to my family by stopping one day in seven. It's a way of acknowledging to God that he is a giver of every good gift, the provider of the bread that we enjoy, and the one who truly holds my life together. When we keep the Sabbath, when we, again, it's not necessarily on the Saturday, depends on when you work, but we can make time to hear God's voice. We can experience a fullness, a richness in our soul. So 
Spend time in worship, take a break, kick back, chill out, pray, read, talk, enjoy, fly a kite, take a nap, listen to your kids. This is a rest day. So when you set the whole day apart, it's amazing what conversations will start to flow. People will begin to open up, but it takes time. So a whole day as a family is just fantastic. It's a gift. This command is a gift to us to relax and to spend time with our families. Our families can be stronger, our health can be better, and our soul can be restored. So verse 12, Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that this is a unique commandment because it's the only one that has a promise attached to it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you obey your parents, you're going to live a long life. I think of it this way. I mean, look at Adam. He lived 30 times longer than Jesus, but he didn't honor his father 30 times more than Jesus. You know what I mean? It's the other way around, actually. So we need to honor our parents because it leads to a better quality of life. If we don't honor our parents, we have a poor quality of life. There's always fighting, there's always quarrels, stress, there's all these kind of things happening. But if we do honor our parents, it brings a better quality of life. So, Jesus was a reflection of his father, John 5.19. In the same way, we're also, or in a similar way, we are also a reflection of our parents. So, if we're down on them, in a way, we're also down on ourselves. Therefore, the best thing to do is to honor our mother and father. So Jesus was dependent on his father, John 5.26, and we also are dependent on our earthly parents. Now, we might have some really terrible parents. Some of you might have had terrible parents, but you know what? They have given us life. They have sustained our lives and probably saved our lives many more times than we could ever imagine. So that's one thing we should be honoring our parents for, just one thing. And that's a big thing. Now, Jesus was submitted to his Father. Now, we're talking about submission here. Honoring someone means submitting to them. And that's two key qualities that will bring fulfillment and success to everyone's life. Humility and submission. And you know what? The family is really the only place you're going to get that. Because if I don't like my job, what do I do? I quit. I'm not going to submit to him. I'm going to go. If I don't like my friends, bye-bye. I'm going to make some new friends. If I don't like my neighbors, I can move. If I don't like my school, I can drop out. But if I don't like my parents, (laughs) too bad. You're stuck. (laughs) Okay? It's one relationship we cannot change. And it's when we don't agree with them or understand them that submission and humility are worked into our character. So when Jesus was most mature, Just before the cross, he said, I am in submission to my Father, and so must we be to our earthly parents. Now, another thing that 
parents do is we validate our kids. We give them their identity. That's a really important part of being a parent. Jesus was validated by his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said that the only honour that matters is that which comes from the Father. And that same is true to a certain extent with us in our earthly parents. When we say to our kids, what you did then was fantastic, you told the truth even though it was difficult, you're a really great kid. And that just really builds them up. On the other hand, we can really drag them down too. Because our kids are looking to us for validation, for honour. So for us, if we have never received this validation from your earthly parents, I didn't receive much from mine. If you're a Christian, always remember that you have a perfect Father in heaven who loves you, and in his eyes you are perfect. Now, some of you might say, it was easy for Jesus to submit to his Father. After all, his Father was God. He was perfect. My Father walked out on me. He beat me. He failed to provide for me. He ignored me. How can I honour a man like that? Well, what does Matthew 27.46 say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried from the cross. Jesus' father turned his back on him. Did Jesus stop submitting at that point? No. Marred more than any other man, Jesus knows what it is like to be smitten by a father. The father was the one who smote Jesus. That's Isaiah 52, 53, Matthew 4, 3. If you're the son of God, why are you hungry? Turn these stones to bread, Satan taunted, implying that Jesus' father wasn't providing for him. Luke twenty two forty four. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me praying so intensely that his sweat was like drops of blood, but the cup of suffering did not pass from him, meaning that Jesus knows better than anyone what it's like for a parent to seemingly ignore a request. So he might have had a bad parent. Now, I'm not saying the father's a bad parent, but Jesus has experienced these things. You shall not murder. Here's a little analogy here. While working on a roof, two men stumbled and fell down the chimney. The first one down absorbed all the soot. He's the one that got dirty. When they got to the bottom, the first man looked at his partner and assumed his own face was clean. This was the guy who fell down first. Because his partner, who fell down second, he didn't get dirty. The second man looked at his partner and assumed his own face was dirty. And both were wrong. Concerning the commandment before us, some who think they're clean may not be while some who think they are dirty may not be as dirty as they think. So, here's an example. There's a quote. I talked to a man who has recently become a believer. Years ago, as a Marine in Vietnam, he killed a number of North Vietnamese soldiers. Now he wonders if he violated the command not to kill. In Matthew 19.18, we see that in commanding us not to kill, God is commanding us not to murder. The question then becomes, is war murder? Well, I don't believe so. In the Old Testament, God ordered the destruction of the Canaanite culture after giving them 400 years to repent from their evil, Acts 7-6. In Romans 13, Paul makes it clear that God raised up governments to bear the sword in order to keep evil in check. That is capital punishment. 
So I believe that Scripture clearly teaches that fighting in an army does not make one a murderer. Is capital punishment murder? Again, I believe the answer is no. Again, Romans 13. Also, read Genesis 6 through 8. There was no government institution there, no capital punishment, and the world was just running wild. It was terrible. And then God introduced capital punishment, and it's solved a lot of the problems. It's kept a lid on the evil. It's suppressed the evil because there's now consequences. On the other hand, the person who thinks his face is clean might actually have a dirty face. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So there's two words that are translated as anger. The first is thumos. Sounds like thunder. That's the kind of anger we're talking about. You know, your veins bulge, your face goes red, that kind of anger. But that's not the anger used here. The word here is orgizo. A word that refers to the anger that smoulders internally day after day, week after week, and month after month, and year after year. The person who harbours this kind of anger without a cause is the one with the black face, the one who's guilty. Oh, but I have a cause. I have a reason to be angry. Well, if you look at Matthew 18, we see the parable that Jesus told. Remember, the servant had this massive, massive debt and the master agreed to forgive that huge debt. And then he wouldn't forgive his friend, his fellow servant, who owed him like a few dollars. So the reason why we should be forgiving other people and not holding on to these grudges is because we have been forgiven for so much more than we're required to forgive others for. It's just common sense. If we put all our mixed motives, evil intentions, and sinful imaginations before us, we brought them all out. Our sin against God is so much more than any sin that's been done to us. And God has forgiven us, so therefore we should forgive other people. Verse 14, you should not commit adultery. Because the seventh commandment is the least understood, it's also the most argued. You think about the things that people were talking about today the homosexuality and all that kind of stuff. He went to a circus last night, and the um, I thought, this is a good circus. There's no swearing, there's no lewdness so far, there's no pelvic thrusting. I thought, it's good, nothing so far. And then he's doing his tennis routine, and he says, I can't play tennis in these pants, and it's a guy, and he pulls down these pants, and he's wearing a skirt. I was like, oh, you know, why can't they just keep it? clean so the seventh commandment is more than just committing adultery Proverbs 6.32 says but the man who commits adultery is an utter fool for he destroys himself the world thinks sex is about procreation and recreation it fails to understand that it's primarily about unification it's about two souls being brought together and merged as one So the issue here is not about unwanted pregnancy or disease or AIDS. God says do not commit adultery because the issue is the intimacy 
with the soul, the two souls of two people. When God married Adam and Eve, he looked at them and he named them mankind. He gave both of them one name, mankind, Genesis 5.2. So sex outside of marriage destroys your soul. Every time a person is involved in sexual activity outside of marriage, there will be destruction, a slow but inevitable destruction. And listen to how Jesus is so emphatic when he deals with the subject of adultery and divorce. So I'd just like you to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. Because this is such a dangerous sin for us, because it hurts us so badly, Jesus really, really lays it on. He says, you've got to stay away from this sin. So Matthew 5, verse 27, I'm going to read through to verse 32. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So that's Jesus' commentary or Jesus' explanation of this command. So our sexual appetite, our sexual desire is very strong. God knows that. Used for good, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it unites, but used outside of the bounds of marriage, it's very, very destructive. It's like nuclear fuel. You can put it in a nuclear reactor and provide warmth and electricity and lights for a whole city or you can blow the city up. So, if there was a sign which read, please proceed with great caution, because behind these doors there are experiments taking place with chemical components which may be used one day to cause an explosive reaction at some future point. Would you bother reading the whole thing? Probably not. But what if it said, danger, explosives? Would you read it then? Yeah? So, God says, do not commit adultery. It's like danger explosives. Stay away. All right. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Although the Eighth Commandment is straightforward and simple, it is even more so in Hebrew where it reads simply, steal not. As a society, we know that stealing is wrong. So we teach our kids from the earliest age not to take what is not theirs. Now, here's a quote. I don't know if it's true or not. According to the IRS, this is in America, the tax department there, if no one cheated on their taxes, the national debt would be paid off in one year. And you can imagine what it would be like in Australia too. Everyone's trying to get away with as much as they can. Here's another example of how stealing is part of our culture. In New York City one time, there was a strike, a garbage strike, and so the garbage wasn't collected for two weeks. So this guy wrapped his garbage up in a nice bag, put it on his front seat, and every day someone stole it from his car. (laughs) 
So it's just it just goes to show you what our society is like. We can also rob our employers through having long lunches or leaving early or not doing our hours or not working hard. So there's other ways we can steal, downloading music and all that kind of stuff. So what does the Bible say about how to overcome this sinful tendency, our sinful nature? Well, Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Now, when man fell in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that he was to work by the sweat of his brow. And we think, oh, that's a punishment. Well, I'm thinking it's protection. Because if we work hard, we'll make enough for ourselves and we won't need to steal, to take shortcuts or to cheat. So one of the greatest ways to be free from thievery is to work hard. Now, what happens if you're unemployed, if you haven't got work? How do you feel? You feel down, you feel depressed, disillusioned, sad about your situation. But when you're working hard, and uh, I found when I'm especially physical work, if you're working hard, you feel good at the end of that day. You feel tired, but you feel good. Jesus said, if someone compels you to go a mile, one mile, go two, Matthew 5.41. Go twice as far. Work twice as hard as your boss expects. Satan tells us that you deserve a break. You've got your rights. But guess what? Jesus tells us to go twice as far because with his burden being easy and his load light, he knows it's for our benefit. And why? That he may give something to him who has need. That's Ephesians 4.28. So if we're working harder than others and we're going to end up usually being successful, not to accumulate stuff for ourselves, but to give to other people. And it gives us this joy and this freedom. Zacchaeus, when he became saved, what did he do? He gave back all that money. Giving to church. Malachi 3 verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have you robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So, We are to open up our hands and give. God indicted his people of robbery when they failed to tithe. So because the whole earth belongs to God, Psalm 24.1, giving to God is just acknowledging that everything we have has been given to us by him, and we just give some back as a thank you. And Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all? things. So God has given us everything we need. He's given us the greatest gift. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, it's not just telling lies, but it also includes being tricky with the truth. So we see the false witness used in scripture in Matthew 26:59, and they falsely accused Jesus of threatening to destroy the temple when in fact he was speaking of his own death. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they knew that. They knew the context of what he was saying, but they twisted it. Satan is a father of lies. He's the ultimate false witness. And he's accusing us day and night before God's throne. Jesus, on the other hand, is a faithful and true witness, not a false witness. He's our advocate, our defense lawyer. So when we talk about other people, we need to think of them as God thinks of them. 
So when we talk about other people, remember how God sees them, and you don't want to be like Satan, accusing and talking about people's failings. There's a time when you might have to bring something up, but generally speaking, try and avoid it. Exodus 20 verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, etc. So, of all the commandments, this is the one that's taken the least seriously. For example, if you commit murder, break the sixth commandment, you might be executed. If you break the eighth commandment, stealing, you might end up in jail. If you break the ninth, you might be sued, if you lie, slander someone. But if you break the tenth commandment, you're applauded. Because in today's culture, coveting is encouraged. What does covet mean? It's just to want more of something of which you already have enough of. And what does the advertising tell us? The only way to have real life is to have this car or that toy. But Jesus said, I am the life. A man's life does not consist of the stuff he has materially. And to illustrate his point, Jesus goes on in this passage, to give a parable of a man who had so many material goods that it was necessary for him to construct bigger barns to hold it all. Now, the financial planners, thumbs up, yeah? Bigger barns, look after your future, fantastic. His culture would consider him blessed. Look at that massive house, look at his bank account, this guy is really doing well. But what was God's perspective of this in Luke chapter 12? God considered him a fool for failing to lay up treasure in the only place that matters, heaven. Luke twelve twenty. So if God blesses you materially, wonderful. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy six seventeen. So it's interesting that in Jesus' parable, the rich man was planning to enjoy his wealth in the future. He was storing it up for later. So basically, he never truly enjoyed what he had at the time. And we can do the same thing now. We can live for things, waiting or wanting more things, focus on things, and we'll never ever be satisfied. For we always think that we might need just a few more things to make us happy. So the solution for this, if God gives us material blessings, we give them or we use them to bless other people. What did Abraham do? He left his comfortable life behind to seek a city whose builder and maker was God. He saw the big picture. He saw the kingdom. Jesus also said, It is the deceitfulness of riches that crowds out the word in our lives. Matthew 13.22 So, riches, material things, can crowd out God's word in our lives. And so, that's why God tells us not to covet. So, we'll stop there. God's Ten Commandments are there to protect us. Remember that through the Holy Spirit living in us and the new heart, the new desires that God has given us, as we mature and become more like Christ, we transform more and more into his image, we will want to do these things. The yoke will be easy and the burden light. So, Father, I just thank you for what you've shown us today. It's very simple. But Lord, help us to put into practice. Help us to set these standards high in our lives, Lord, to remember this is your character, this is who you are, and this is who you want us to be. You want us to be honest. 
You want us to be giving. You want us to be faithful. You want us to be loyal to you, to put you first in everything. All these things, they come with a positive. So help us to not think of these as a drag, but Lord, to think of these as promises that will bring blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.